big warm welcome to you. This is the Aware Parenting Podcast with Lael Stone and Marion Rose, PhD. We have juicy conversations about things that matter in parenting and life. We're exploring all that Aware Parenting has to offer from many different angles, and we are so glad that you're here. Hello and a big warm welcome to you. My name's Marion Rose. And I'm Lael Stone. And today we have a very, very special episode. Very, very special guest. <laughs> the most special guest. <laughs> the the founder of Aware Parenting, the Aware Parenting Institute, Aletha Salter, PhD. Welcome, Aletha. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be on your podcast. We're so delighted that you're here. And in fact, I don't know why we didn't ask you soon. I don't, we suddenly went, oh, we, we could ask Aletha on. So thank you so much for being here. Today, before we share more about the topic, I'd love to introduce you more formally. So people who are perhaps newer to Aware Parenting really understand your amazing and long background that's so important and relevant to what we're talking about today. So, so Aletha, you are a Swiss-American developmental psychologist recognized internationally as an expert on attachment, trauma, and non-punitive discipline. So you studied with the Swiss psychologist Jean Piaget at the University of Geneva in Switzerland, and you got a master's degree in human biology. That was back in 1969. You then did your PhD in psychology from the University of California in 1975, and after that you taught psychology and conducted research as well. You have two adult children and two grandchildren, and you live in Southern California. Yum! <laughs> So what I, I love this part particularly that when your first child was born in 1977, you didn't find any parenting books that advocated attachment style parenting and non-punitive discipline while taking into account the impact of stress and trauma on children's development. And so you wrote your first book, The Aware Baby, which was first published in 1984 and revised in 2001. And really, that's the book that you would have liked as a new mother. And the Aware Baby sold over 200,000 copies worldwide, which is so amazing and in many translated into many languages as well, isn't it? Yes. So after that, you wrote Cooperative and Connected, which is a 2018 revised edition of Helping Young Children Flourish. And you've got other books, which are Tears and Tantrums, Raising Drug-Free Kids, Attachment Play, and your most recent book, which just came out a few months ago, Healing Your Traumatized Child. You give talks and workshops for parents and professionals all over the world. You've appeared on TV and you still offer consultations for parents who are familiar with this work, which I think is amazing. Such an incredible opportunity for people to actually get to work with you. And in 1990, you founded the Aware Parenting Institute, which has certified instructors in over 20 countries. And you say on your website, your goal is to help create a non-violent world in which all children are supported to attain their full potential. And with the tools of aware parenting, you're confident that parents can raise your children, their children, to be competent, compassionate, non-violent and drug-free. And with deep support and compassion for parents and how hard parenting is that was a, a, an amazingly long and just I really want to acknowledge the huge amount of, you know, research, background information, like the way that you've brought together so many years of, of study and experience and wisdom. So, yeah, thank you, Aletha. Oh, thank you for that lovely introduction. Very complete. <laughs> mm, yeah. And 
on behalf of all the parents out there, I just want to say thank you for your amazing work. And it was, I often just think how pioneering your work was. You know, I I often see now parents, you know, or people or science or that kind of stuff for just catching up to, oh, yes, it's really important attachment. It's really important feelings. And I just think that you were so ahead of your time of bringing this to life. And yeah, I mean, I am, it changed my life. We've done many podcasts on this of finding your work, what an impact it had on my life and my work moving forward. And even the school I built, just all of it is, I'm so deeply grateful for, you know, the path that you've taken and putting your work out there in the world. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. It's really rewarding to me to know that I, you know, can help people this way through my books. And yeah, I like what you said about the research. I'm just so delighted every time I discover a new research study that supports something I wrote 30 years ago. It's really rewarding to Mm -hmm. me to see the research that, that is supporting this approach. Mm, that I, it must feel I can imagine how rewarding that is it, to have something that you know or that your own research you know discovered and then to see it backed up I, I can imagine must feel pretty good yeah. and, and today we really wanted to delve a little bit into developmental the developmental psychology particularly around children and and how that looks through an aware parenting lens and before we kind of move into some of that there were some stories that you wanted to share didn't you Aletha about some stuff that you've just that that ties into this topic? Yeah well when I do I do consultations with parents as Marianne mentioned and I've just been realizing quite recently actually how much my information about child development about different developmental stages informs the kind of advice I give or the kind of support I can give to parents and that parents find this very useful. So I, you know, parents, basically they want to know, many parents who consult with me want to know if their child is normal. Okay. (laughs) Is my child normal? Meaning, I don't really like that word, but I do use it in my books. Um, What they mean is, is my child, is this behavior typical of this stage of development? Mm -hmm. Or is there some unhealed trauma? Or have I done something wrong? <laughs> or they just they just want to know how normal this behavior is. So I just had some recent clients, parent, uh, parents consulted with me about their 10-year-old son who had separ- really strong separation anxiety. He didn't want to be away from his mother and he didn't want to go to school. And so they were kind of wondering, is this, is this kind of a normal stage? Do 10-year-old boys go through a stage of separation anxiety from their mother? Um, and I said, well, no. <laughs> I mean, it's not really typical. So then we explored sources of trauma, sources of stress, what was going on at school. So once we knew, you know, they knew that it wasn't typical, it was helpful to, to look for the other causes in the family. Parents had gotten divorced. There'd been a traumatic incident at school. There were a number of things that we looked into. So, and then another example, a recent example was parents of an 18-month-old child, boy, who had been adopted soon after birth, and he had alcohol in his blood when he was born. They suspected prenatal trauma. He was 18 months old. They had only been practicing aware parenting for a few months, and he was showing signs of opposition, negativism, independence, assertiveness, saying no, you know, all these wonderful things that a month old 
children typically do. And they wanted to know, is this normal? Have I done something wrong? Is it because he was adopted? Is it because he had alcohol in his blood? What, what's going on? So I was able to tell them, well, that is a very, that's very typical behavior for children that age. And that was reassuring to them that, you know, they hadn't done anything wrong. It wasn't caused by the adoption, although it could have been partly, you know, so we explored the different reasons, but I reassured them that, you know, this may have nothing to do with the fact that your child is adopted. Mm. So I think parents of children who had, you know, adopt, were adopted or who've had early trauma, they've had a medical procedure or something as a baby. The tendency is to assume that everything is caused by that early trauma, whereas that may not always be the case. Mm. So that's basically the two examples I wanted to, to share to kind of start off our discussion. Mm, I think that is so helpful because I find and I'm sure Mary new experiences too, often working with clients, that, that that is the question, is this normal? What's wrong with my child? Mm-hmm. And then when you, you do a bit of investigation, you can begin to see it's very normal for a three-year-old to want to do it their way. It's very mm-hmm. normal for, you know, a tween or teenager to look for some more independence and not want to share as much perhaps, you know, that they're, they're there might be some things going on for them. I think it is so helpful to get that information to understand, you know, exactly as we're going to talk about those developmental stages, because then it can actually allow us kind of to tune into more about what might be happening for that child and how we can support what is going on for them. So I think information, as we always say, is so vital in helping us understand our children and how we can respond to them. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and not having expectations that are developmentally inappropriate, mm. <laughs> you know, that are too high to to really having realistic expectations for what what our children can do or can learn at certain stages. Mm. Yeah, so helpful, isn't it? So today we thought we'd go through two particular things. So the first is myth, the myths about typical behaviors at different ages that aware parenting helps to dispel. And secondly, we thought we'd talk about really offering accurate information about developmental stages that really helps parents who are implementing aware parenting uh, in each of the three aspects. So the um, attachment style parenting and non-punitive discipline and really understanding and supporting healing from stress and trauma. So shall we start with the myths? Mm. Yeah, but there's lots of myths, aren't there? (laughs) There are so many myths, aren't there? (laughs) Misinformation about stages of development, like it's like it's normal for toddlers to hit and bite. You know, there's so many books that say, oh, that's just normal. They'll grow out of it. That's what all toddlers do. Well, it isn't normal in the sense of being, and I do, you know, the word normal, it's hard to get away from it, isn't it? (laughs) It's if a child is hitting and biting other children, there is something going on. There is some stress or unhealed trauma. And children who are raised with aware parenting from birth, they don't typically do these things. They don't hit or bite other children. Yes, and if they do, it's really clear. We talk about flag for feelings. It's a really clear right. sign, isn't it? There is there right. are some accumulated feelings. There is some stress and trauma in the body that's causing that behavior that then right. parents can move in to, to support the release and healing of that, which is very different, isn't it, from, oh, they'll get over it. It's, co- it's yeah. common, isn't it? It is common for toddlers to hit and bite because by that age, 
if parents haven't understood about aware parenting, that they to, for there to be a lot of accumulated feelings by that age. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, sh- I shouldn't really say if we raise children with aware parenting, they will never hit or bite. That's, that's a <laughs> bit incorrect. But uh, <laughs> no, they do sometimes. But we know what to do about it, don't we? <laughs> mm-hmm. Which makes all the difference, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What other some of the other myths that you've heard over the years that stand out for you? Well, about teenagers, it's really not normal for teenagers to rebel. When we raise children without punishments, they really have nothing to rebel against. And there's a word, there's the word individuation. It's normal for them and appropriate for them to individuate and become their own person and become more independent and maybe not want to always spend every weekend with their family anymore, <laughs> with their parents. That's 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 normal. And and but to rebel, that that is the result of punitive discipline, usually, or mm. some kind of unhealed trauma. Mm. And often the advice is that's given out there a lot of the time, because I have worked quite a bit with teenagers, is well, you just have to come down harder on them, or you have to find out what their currency is to take something away to get them to behave. And again, it kind of misses the whole foundation of the why behind a child is acting the way they are. And yeah, I agree with you. I've always felt deeply passionate about teenagers and and wanted to create a whole new story out there that says teenagers are amazing and raising teens can be so brilliant and so beautiful. But there is that bit of a myth out there that, oh, God, wait till you get to the teenage years. They're, they're really full on and it's going to be intense. But I agree with you, you know, with my own kids and that it, being able to be deeply connected to them and especially not using punitive discipline really does give you the opportunity to be with your kids, allow them to individuate, as you say, you know, without the need to control what's going on for them. And they're so often more forthcoming in sharing where they're at, what's going on and not needing to, you know, act out in other ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I kept waiting for my children to rebel. Yeah. People told me, I'll just wait till they're teenagers. You'll see. Yeah. It never happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It never yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love, I love you said, Lael, as well, about, about the, that, again, that common perception, isn't it? I think about teenagers and toddlers, both of what we've talked about, isn't it? In the, the, the common perception, actually, of children in, in this culture is that they're, you know, they're, they're not very enjoyable and they're kind of, you know, uh, you know annoying. And what I love about aware parenting is it really does give a completely different understanding of the true nature of children. And actually, when children are brought up in these ways, yes, they will have times where they'll do things that we might find challenging. But on the whole, they're just really enjoyable to be around, aren't they? And, par- and, and like family life becomes on the whole, yes, there are stresses and so on, but it just becomes an enjoyable experience. So I really want to acknowledge, Aletha, the power of aware parenting that's, you know, for me, completely transformed my understanding of what children are and and really that completely I would say globally you know that that myth that children are are kind of annoying right you know they're not they're not they're wonderful beings aren't they wonderful beings (laughs) yes absolutely so is there any other myth that you that you want to bring up before we move on to some developmental stuff is there anything that you've heard a lot of or that you see well, there's you no know, the talk of we talk about sleep regressions. So that's a term I just I was a bit surprised when I first started reading about this because you know there's there's no typical developmental age like four months or six months. Whenever it's supposed to happen, this 
hypothetical sleep regression. It, it, it just has to do with it. it Maybe start waking up more often. There's, there's reasons for it. Either they're a gross spurt or they're accumulated stress, which is, which is, you know, making it difficult for them to relax. Mm-hmm. You which know, makes so much sense when you think about a newborn who perhaps is just in that beautiful little cocoon and then three or four months later they're more in the world and there's more interaction and there's, you know, they're they're bigger and it would make a lot of sense that there's more to feel or there's more to let go of or there's more to release. If we look at it instead of the at four months there's a regression, we can see it as, ah, you know, of course there's more of them being in the world now mm-hmm. and, and that can add to stresses that they may carry. Yeah, I mean, have parents parents who consult with me that maybe their baby sleeps quite well until six months, or they start they they don't start having sleep problems till they're twelve months old or something. I mean, there's no there's no single age where this happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, and it so, can often be, can't it? I mean, I, I, there are apps around as well now, apparently. I, I hear apps where you can look at the all the sleep regressions and which one your baby's really. at. So uh, I really think it's rather than actually wondering what's going on, as you both said, and thinking about also when they reach new developmental stages, as often they get more frustrated, so they have more feelings to express mm-hmm. to us, or the mm-hmm. feelings have accumulated over a certain amount of time. It's mm-hmm. such a different way of looking at babies, isn't it? So, so much yeah. more of depth rather than, oh, they're they're doing this thing. It's just a stage to actually what's really going on for this individual baby. Yeah. It's so right. beautiful. Mm. So we were looking at, I wanted to explore a little bit more about children's developmental stages. And, you know, this can be so helpful because it can help us understand children's needs and feelings and behaviour. And so, you know, with, I guess, those beautiful three aspects of aware parenting, that attachment style parenting, non-punitive discipline and preventing healing and trauma, can we take a look a little bit around that first one around attachment needs or styles developmentally? What would you like to share around that, Aletha? Well, basically the importance of the first year, creating that, that secure attachment during the first year is such an important developmental stage for attachment and the also the the normal I'm using that word again the normal stage of separation anxiety which is it peaks around 12 months you can start as early as six months and starts to decline after 18 months and this is a normal typical normal stage of development it doesn't mean the parents have done anything wrong in fact it's a good sign if a 12-month-old doesn't want to be separated from the parent, that's that's a sign of healthy attachment. So that that's helpful to parents to know that. And that's when peekaboo, incidentally, is most effective, is during the stage of most intense separation anxiety, which is 6 to 18 months. Mm. So, and then this whole idea of spoiling, well, that's another myth, of course, you can't spoil a baby but babies can be very demanding between about three months and until they crawl whenever that is around nine months maybe that's that's a very demanding stage and that's when parents sometimes begin to feel oh I have to I have to avoid spoiling my baby do is it okay to meet every need is it okay to pick them up every time they cry but that's normal for a baby that age to be demanding because after three months, they need new stimulation, and yet they can't 
crawl around and get it for themselves. <laughs> and so they really welcome being in arms, being brought, you know, being part of our life, and picked up whenever they they want to be. So the concept of when now if an eight-year-old were that demanding, we might start to look for other causes, you know, constantly wanting attention. It's normal at eight months, but not at, at eight years, there might be something else going on. Right. Mm. I'm wondering, oh, Oh. sorry, I was just going to jump in and ask a question of one of the things that I discovered with my third child and also quite a few parents I've spoken with when we, when I've done aware parenting right from the very beginning is around about nine or 10 months, she was a lot less willing to just move into tears. I think that's actually when I contacted you, Marion, because I was like, what do I do now? I've been listening to all these feelings and now all of a sudden she's not, she's not expressing and and many clients over the years have said similar things. There's been around about between 10 to kind of 14, 16 months, there's this movement around not so easily moving into the feelings and the tears. Do you have anything to share about that, Aletha? I just think there's so much in the world that that, it, that draws their attention at that age. They're, they're very easily distracted. Um, they're just so eager to go out and explore that, some children just just are busy all day that age, you know, 12 months or so, just busy learning and exploring that they, they kind of save it up for when there is, it's dark and there's not, nothing exciting happened. Then it's like, okay, maybe I can start releasing emotions now. But it's sometimes hard during the day when there's interesting things to do and to look at. But that's how I would explain that. Mm, yeah, thank you. Should we move on to non-punitive discipline elements Mm. of that from a developmental perspective? Yeah, Yeah. I think this is is such a beautiful piece. I think what we're going to talk about here, because, you know, what I see a lot in the mainstream in my work is so much about that, that still belief that children should be taught a lesson, that we need to punish children in order to teach them. It's such a big paradigm shift for a lot of parents, understanding the power of non-punitive discipline and I mean for me I think it's one of the most beautiful powerful tools we can have as parents when we're always looking behind what's going on to support our children with whatever's happening I think this is just such a huge paradigm shift for a lot of people though and and it'd be really great to just hear more from you Aletha around how that looks developmentally. Yeah well I think it's really helpful for parents to know what to expect, as I mentioned before, for example, like a a 15 month old child really is not capable of understanding the concept of a rule. It's not a question of memory, not remembering. It's a question of really not getting it. Okay, what applies today also applies tomorrow and the next day and next week. They don't have the mental ability to to understand what's a rule you know, like no drawing on the walls, for example. Um, And when my son drew on the walls at age two, two and a half or so, I was, the first time it happened, I was quite appalled because I assumed that he should know better, which of course, (laughs) why would he know better? But I just, I realized that he was old enough to understand the concept of a rule. So I just explained, you know, we don't draw on the walls. We want to keep them clean, and you know, we I need to I need to clean it up. And he he even wanted to help clean it up. He thought that was fun, and and I made sure he always had a stack of paper, and he never did it again. 
but that wouldn't have worked with a 15 month old or maybe not even with an 18 month old. So I think it's helpful for parents to understand that concept of a rule um, starting around age two. And the other important developmental stage for like for issues of discipline, what happens around age seven or eight, until that age, children can't really understand another person's point of view. For example, a four-year-old will, they'll stand between you and the TV. You know, if you're watching TV, they'll get them stand in front of it and look at the TV up close maybe. And you say, you know, I can't see when you're standing in front of it. And the four-year-old might be very surprised because they can see it. Why can't you see it? It's hard for them to put themselves into your position. <laughs> and it's the same, you know, a two-year-old might take a toy off, off of a shelf, but they also might take the toy out of another child's hands. They don't understand that that child might be upset about that. Okay. It doesn't mean they don't have empathy. It, it's more of a cognitive understanding is what, what can cause someone else to be upset. So in that sense, children are fairly what, what Jean Piaget called egocentric. He called it egocentric, not because they're selfish, but because they just don't get it, what other people might, how other people might be experiencing the world. You know, things like they might yell, I hate you, while having a temper tantrum. It, it might not even occur to them that you would take it personally or that, or that you might feel hurt by that, or they might yell it to another child. And they're just expressing their momentary feelings of anger and frustration. And this is typical of children between the ages, you know, up to the age of seven or eight, to really, they don't automatically think about how their behavior might affect someone else. Gosh, that's so helpful to hear that, because I think that is... Uh it's a huge thing for a lot of parents where they can easily go into the why are you doing that or why are you being naughty or why can't you be good? And it's so helpful to have that information just around how, you know, where they're at in their development. I would love to ask you too, you know, one of the things that often happens with our beautiful toddlers is they learn to say no and they they want to say no all the time. Do you want to speak to that a little bit about how powerful and important it is for them to be able to express that? Yeah, the stage of autonomy, yeah, I, which was basically my first example that I, one of the examples I shared at the beginning of this conversation, that children who have go through the stage of negativism or independence and say, no, that's so typical and so normal. They just, you know, it's time to change their clothes. They run the other direction. You're going for a walk. They want to go a different direction. It's time to put them in their car seat. They don't want to be in that. It's time to take them out, and they don't want to be taken out of the car seat. It's just so typical. They're developing a will of their own, and parents do worry about that stage. That actually is so the two main triggers for child abuse are crying and willfulness, what's called willfulness, and, and saying no. Those are big triggers for child abuse. I hate to bring in child abuse, but they, these behaviors sometimes really trigger parents when they don't understand these behaviors are just normal behaviors. 
So just to clarify, you're saying it can bring up the triggers in the parent around what may have happened to them by their children not doing what you want them to do or by having the no and those kind of things. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. I I definitely understand that. Well, and and it's interesting, I think, you know, even if there hasn't been an abuse in the adult's life, so many of us were brought up in environments where we were never allowed to say no, we were never allowed to express how we were feeling. And so that can often feel Mm -hmm. really activating for parents, no matter what, when your child won't do what you want, or when you can't get them in the car seat, it can bring up so many frustrations and past hurts for us. You know, purely yeah. because it's tapping right. us into the fact that we never had the opportunity to have big nose and, you know, yeah, express exactly. our rage, all those kind of things. Yes. I can relate yes. personally to that one, let me tell you. <laughs> yes. Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah, we get triggered by these things. Even when we understand that it's a normal state of development, that doesn't, that doesn't make it totally easy. <laughs> we still need to deal with our own childhood wounds don't we but I think it can definitely help to know this typical behaviors mm, absolutely yeah. oh and another thing about developmental stages um the, the development of language you know children children when they're first learning language they learn the simple declarative sentences but if you say don't pull the cat's tail they're going to hear pull the cat's tail and the word don't which is way back at the beginning of the sentence that might not register so they form a mental image in their mind of pulling the cat's tail which makes them more likely to actually do that so I think we have to be careful how we talk to children I remember when my daughter was about four or five and we were out hiking and it was a rather steep rocky trail and she was feeling very confident, just running ahead. And I made the mistake of saying, don't run, you might fall. She immediately fell as soon as I said that. And I I felt responsible for making her fall until I kind of planted that idea in her head. You know, the negative, conditional, subjunctive, all these fine points of language, don't get through to children. So the best way to convey information is to actually demonstration, demonstrating how we want children. This is how we pet a cat. Let's hold hands and walk slowly right here rather than saying what we don't want them to do. I think that's an important consideration and has to do with language development. I love that point. And I can absolutely agree that I have also done things like that. Like you know, be careful climbing up that tree really hard. Be careful. It might it might not be strong enough And the next minute. You know, my child has just done exactly yeah. what I've said is going to happen. It's, it's, a, it's a big thing to get your head around sometimes and language is really powerful and important. And I love what you say here around we want to model what we want our children to be. And, and that also includes when we look at how we respond to their feelings and emotions. If we can respond from a place that's calm and loving and compassionate and empathetic, then they are they are witnessing and on the other side of feeling that, which is more likely that that's what they begin to do. That's that becomes how they can respond to others as well. Yeah, imitation. They learn best by imitation. They imitate us. They see how we say. We don't need to tell them to say please and thank you. We just need to model that behavior, and they will eventually imitate us. 
So, I mean, you know, just modeling how we want them to behave is, is, is pretty important during those early childhood years. I love how you both said that because I wanted to circle back around to what you're saying, Aletha, about cognitively, you know, like the child standing in front of the, the parent's mm-hmm. television perspective. So there's that cognitively. And yet we hear so often, I'm sure both of you have as well, very young children saying the same kinds of things either to their parents or to other children that they've received. So we, with aware parents, oh, yeah. so often, you know, children yeah. saying, you know, I, I hear you and I'm listening to their own parents, to, mm-hmm. to the cat, to their dolls, to, to their friends. So really yeah. that power of, of the language that we're using to them and how they mm-hmm. uh, copy that whilst also holding in mind that cognitively, they yes, all that you explained. So the difference between those two, I think, is powerful too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And one way they do reach this stage of development where they understand other people's point of view is when we give eye messages, we say how we're feeling. And, and it's partly maturation of the nervous system and it's partly just getting a lot of input from from other people how their behavior affects other people so we definitely help them by giving them feedback you know i hate crumbs in the bed you know that's something we might want to let our children know that's an i message and so they will start to understand our point of view about that which is so powerful isn't it where aware parenting is so different to more you know permissive parenting this isn't about ignoring our needs or not expressing our own feelings mm-hmm. but right. we're expressing them in ways that are again developmentally apt we're not giving responsibility for our feelings and needs to them but we're communicating them clearly should we move on to talking a little bit about the powerful work around trauma and healing which you know i just think is just one of the most magnificent parts of your work. All of your work's magnificent, but that is such a game changer, I think. Would you like to share a little bit, Aletha, about, you know, how that may look, you know, around what is normal development fears as opposed to stuff that they've experienced in their lives? Would you like to share some more insights around that? Yeah, well, I, I felt when I when I wrote my newest book, Healing Your Traumatized Child, I actually included a a whole section on developmental stages because I find it's very important for not only knowing, not only understanding how children react to trauma, but how we can help them recover. So there's, there's, and, and how to, how to distinguish normal behavior from, from behavior caused by trauma. So I think, for example, fears that, I mean, how do we distinguish a traumatic fear from a developmental fear, because children do have normal developmental fears, typical fears between the ages of two and eight, again, those magical early childhood years, when they often fear things like animals and flushing toilets and bathtubs and monsters and fear of the dark and all those, those fears and anxieties they can have at that age. Well, let's say a three-year-old has a dog phobia is it caused, is it a normal developmental fear or is it, is it caused by trauma? It could be both. It could be a combination of both. The, the thing about traumatic fears though, they don't usually disappear on their own. Whereas the developmental fears are usually pretty much gone by, by eight years of age. Not always, but often they're outgrown. Yeah. And, and with something like developmental fears and traumatic fears, 
Do you feel that how we respond or how we can support our children is, is you know, with the similar kind of tools, would you see any differentiation around how you would support that? Developmental fears, children need need information that can help and that's they, they uh, that can really help. With traumatic fears, just giving information doesn't help usually, but we can do to support emotions, crying, helping them with attachment play, laughter games. That can help whether the cause is developmental or traumatic. It can help them work, work through those fears. And uh, so we don't really need to know what causes a fear. We can just, we can address them with attachment play. I would always start with attachment play, play with the fear. And then if there's deeper feelings, those will come out. It's just, we just normally listen to emotion. And if we give them that permission and that space to release by crying, they will do so when they need to. I love that you say that because that's one of the pieces of your work that has been so profound for me is trusting my child's journey and trusting what that they know what to do to move, what's sitting there for them. And as a parent, where it landed with me was making sure that I was attuned enough or available enough for mm-hmm. them to bring whatever's going on. So whether it is a developmental fear or a traumatic fear, that my job was to be what I call spacious enough to be present so that that I can see there's something going on and then trusting them to show me what they need to move that, whether it is through play, whether it is through letting out some big feelings. It's, you know, I think we can often get into places as parents of, well, what is it? What do I need to do? And, and what step should I take next? Instead of actually being still sometimes and being attuned enough to allow the child to show us what they need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And what about that beautiful symbolic play, which is just so magnificent to watch with a child, isn't it? Would you like to speak a little bit more to that and the power of that? Yeah, well, that's, that's, again, it's between two and eight years. Around two years, we can start using symbolic play to help children heal from specific traumatic event, like a bee sting or or an accident or... um, something like that, you know, a very specific incident. So that's so useful starting around age two. And then as children get older, and and that's what they they begin to incorporate themes of trauma into their play themselves too. And we can look for that and help support them with that, with the the non-directive play, just paying attention to them. They will incorporate those trauma themes into their play. And that goes on. Even older children, they can incorporate, revisit trauma. So children need to revisit trauma in order to heal. That's one of the, the basic conditions. And they, they spontaneously look for ways to do that. They know that's what they need. That's what's so wonderful about this approach, that children know what they need and they will bring up trauma through play or they will they will make use of a small pretext to cry, which I call the broken cookie phenomenon. So they, they, they do all that spontaneously. But what I was going to say about symbolic play, that, that also evolves into maybe when they're older using drawings or role-playing or storytelling. There's all sorts of ways to bring in symbolic, to revisit trauma symbolically as children get older. Mm, I I absolutely love 
when we can hold that as a possibility, you then can just watch your kids with curiosity and you can see how good they are at actually doing that. I mean, I have many, many stories from my children over the years using that. I mean, particularly one that stands out for me is my daughter broke her arm. It was the third time she'd broken her arm and, you know, there had to be a lot of x-rays. And even though I'd listened to lots and lots of feelings, the day after she got her cast off, she wanted to play the x-ray game and she set up this whole beautiful x-ray game in the lounge room with the clothes horse. Mm-hmm. And for a whole week she had to x-ray everyone that came over to the house. And, you know, she played the per play. She was the the doctor and she would take a full case history of what had happened to people and she would be using all the beautiful words like, I know you feel scared but it's okay, I'm here, I'm going to take care of you. And she just played it so magnificently for about a week and then she just packed it up and then that was it. She didn't need to do it anymore. And it was fascinating for me to sit back and watch her just in her wisdom know what she needed to do to process this event that went on. And really I just had to play along, be a bystander with her. It was pretty incredible. Right, right. Yeah, children are amazing. They know what they need, don't they? They know what they need to heal. Yeah. And the other aspect of of development that that is very important when when we're thinking about trauma is that children go through a stage of of feeling that maybe they caused things that they didn't. This ties in with the stage of egocentrism that Piaget talks about. They they might think that they caused their their parents' divorce because they were too acting, you know, not cooperative enough. Or they might think they caused their mother's miscarriage because they were too loud, made too much noise. They get all these mis- misconceptions about, about cause and effect, and they overestimate their own, you know, behaviors as possibly causing these things. So this can lead to guilt and shame and sorts of problems if we don't help them understand, oh, this was not your fault. I think a very useful thing to say to a child for any trauma, this was not your fault. Mm-hmm. This was not your fault. Okay. Yeah. It's another thing that aware parenting talks about so much, isn't it? About us also really taking responsibility for our needs and feelings and our behaviors. And I think that's you know, it's so central to this piece as well, that we're really deliberately and specifically doing that so that children really don't take on that responsibility. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. even such simple things of modeling, as we were talking about before, of just saying things like I, I am feeling angry at the moment and this is, mo- you know, this is mine to own yeah. and I'm feeling frustrated and, and you know, these are mummy's feelings or and even from when our children are very little, just being able to own our experiences and our stories makes such a difference in that narrative that, that children can take on board. Yeah, yeah. To, to make it clear, this is this is me. It has nothing to do with you. This is this is my childhood coming up. <laughs> it's not your fault. You didn't you didn't cause my anger. My anger comes from my own stress. And and they, they you know they can understand that. Even very young children can can sort of understand that. And I think it sets up such a beautiful imprint or modeling in the child to be responsible for their own feelings as well if that's what's modeled mm-hmm. to them you know because mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen that over all your years of work that that's so often as a child we can take on board 
our parents' stories and then we feel like we need to be good all the time or exactly as you're talking about here, we we believe it's our fault for things going on. And when we can be modelled a parent who owns their stuff, then that is what the child goes, oh, that's what you grow up to do. You own your own stuff. You don't project it onto others. You know, it creates a whole different paradigm, doesn't it, around oh, yeah. our connection to feelings and emotions. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. you said that yes mm. is there anything else that you would love to to speak about Aletha just around you know I mean with all your years of experience and again this beautiful body of work that you created around you know any advice for parents or anything you know as maybe they're starting the journey of been doing away parenting for a while that that you know you have seen can can impact the the story and understanding about these developmental phases well I don't I mean Parents don't have to be experts on child development. We we soon become experts as our children grow, but we don't have to start off that way. I I think it is important though to understand the basic stages of development, like the ones we've been talking about, which is I have included much of that information in my books. It 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 can help. And to know just have realistic expectations. We don't want to underestimate our children either. I mean, if a child, sometimes they need a little nudge to, 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 to go out into the world and, and, and do things. And another, another part of this whole picture is we also need to take a child's temperament, temperament in, into account. I mean, what might be typical behavior for, for, um, for one child might be might look very different for a child who's highly sensitive, for example. So that that really can help parents too. Everything, I mean, everything's more intense for highly sensitive children and everything's more overwhelming and overstimulating and they often have more fears and the fears last longer and that that's that's normal for them. So one child's <laughs> one child's normal behavior might be very different from another child's normal behavior. I mean, they all go through the same stages in the same order, but the actual ages might be different depending on the child's temperament. I think that's important to understand too. I mean, a child who's who's reluctant to sleep alone, that's gonna happen much later in a highly sensitive child than in a, a less sensitive child. I remember Aletha, when you came to stay with us, do you remember when Lana was two, I think she was two, and you introduced yeah. the whole concept of highly sensitive, Yeah, the work of Elaine Aron originally, and it just transformed everything for me because I absolutely did have that thing before of like, why, why are all the other children doing all these things? And she wasn't willing to. So it's so relevant for what you're sharing today. You know, it's the more we yeah. understand, you know, what's actually you know, what's the real cause of a child's behavior, we can drop all that judgment and expectation and fear and just really meet the child where they're at. So I'm really grateful to you that you that you introduced that <laughs> you know, my I, life. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy to hear that. Yeah, it, it, it made a difference for me too, because my, my daughter especially is very highly sensitive. And it really helped me understand her better and not to, you know, when she was, she was young, and we, we'd go to three different stores and about to go to a fourth one she started to screaming say no 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 I, I came to realize she was just overstimulated you know it wasn't it wasn't that she was just being stubborn she knew she couldn't handle anymore that day and uh, yeah I think it is helpful so that um, I think most most a good 
percentage of the parents who consult with me, it's often a highly sensitive child who has had some early trauma. And those, I think, are parents who really have a lot of questions and wonder, is my child normal? What can I do? Have I done something wrong? Is my child going to grow up to suffer from serious anxiety disorder as an adult? That's, that's a big concern of parents. And then I try to explain, we, we kind of figure out what's temperament, what's, what's trauma, how, how do those, each of those contribute to the child's behavior? And that can be so reassuring for parents. No, you haven't done anything wrong. This is your child. This is your child with, with a highly sensitive temperament temperament reacting to some some trauma Mm. gosh that's so powerful having that information because it does it it I I imagine it kind of almost always makes parents nervous system go oh okay you know now Mm -hmm. I can I can meet whatever is here and Mm -hmm. I I relate I have three children one is beautifully highly sensitive you know she just leads constantly with her heart and how I have had to respond and parent her has been so different to her brother and sister and and it's what a gift it's been to give me more understanding and compassion for how that can look in the world so it is, you know, information is so powerful, isn't it? You know, I think this these really can impact us as adults really with the view or the lens that we look through when we look at our beautiful children in understanding this information. Yeah, and it's hard to be. If we think we our child is abnormal or that we've done something wrong, it's really hard to be the kind of parent we want to be when we have all those emotions. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I've got to make my child normal now. How do I do that? You know, mm. it, it's that that's not not really helpful. I love that. I love that. That's yeah. so beautiful. And I think that's what aware parenting really does, isn't it? It's like really understanding these general stages of development, then looking at each child's individual temperament, and then bringing together the three elements. It really supports us to really observe with deep compassion and respond to each child, holding in mind these three elements. It makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Rather than just some kind of general thing, it's really about that clear observation and clearly really deeply connecting into each child and and then applying aware parenting based on that. So beautiful. Yes, yes. I think each child, every child has special needs. You know, it's the term used for children with autism or whatever but you know every child has special needs every child is unique and if we can just see each child through through the lens of trauma through the lens of developmental stages through the lens of temperament but just to to keep in mind that every child is totally unique yes I love that I love that So Aletha, you have so many beautiful books and we have talked about them many times on the podcast. And if people want to find your books, where can they, where can they find them? Anywhere. Just Google Aletha. (laughs) I was probably more referring to your website. They are available from all of the online booksellers. They are, you know, bookstores, what we call the real bookstore, brick and mortar bookstores, actual buildings are, are not as common anymore but any bookstore in the world should be able to order them I don't sell them myself anymore you can't order them from me I don't stock them I don't sell them so most people Mm. are able to find them 
Beautiful. And if people want to know more information about you and your beautiful work, what is your website that they can visit? Awareparenting.com. All one word. Beautiful. And there's some amazing articles on there that you've written. And there's also lists to Aware Parenting instructors all over the world. If people want more support or want sessions, you can find that through your website as well. It's a beautiful resource to, you know, to read more and get more information. There's some um, amazing writing that you have on there. Yeah, there's lots of articles. And the post of the introduction to each of my books is on there too. So... Brilliant. I really do recommend anybody who is interested in aware parenting or practicing it to really to get all of your books and to read them multiple times. I often say every single time I read your books and some of them I've read many, 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 many times is I always learn something new. So I really do invite everyone who's listening to to come and check out your books. They really uh, Thank you. Yeah. I, I once in a while I reread them to find out what I actually wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I still agree. And and usually I do. <laughs> oh my God, I love that you say that because sometimes I go back and read something and I go, Oh, that was pretty good. I wrote that. I can't even remember <laughs> yeah. what I said. Yeah. I love that you do that as well. That's that makes me Thank all you. of a sudden feel better. Okay. <laughs> Oh, amazing. Well, we're so grateful for you being here, Aletha. We're so grateful for your work and who you are in the world. And, you know, it's definitely shaped my life and Marion's life. And, and you know, thank you for giving us your time today to, to share your beautiful wisdom and knowledge. And thank you for this podcast. Yes, I've, it's, it's, I think it's really helpful to, to, you know, what you're doing. It's just exploring all the different aspects of parenting and through the lens of aware parenting, I think that you're really helping, helping the world through this information. So I really appreciate what you're doing. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> thank mm. you. Thank you. And so much love to all of our listeners and see you next time. Thanks for joining us on the Aware Parenting Journey. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the Aware Parenting Podcast. You can find more about Lael at www.laelstone.com.au or find Marion at www.marionrose.net. We wish you much compassion and grace on your parenting journey.